Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 85. I'm Jim Cornall and this is the weekly podcast from the biotech. There are often big claims made in every walk of life and this week we have an interview with a company in the US that says it is writing the final chapter in genomic medicines. That company is Tome Biosciences and it definitely has a case as you will hear in this conversation with the company's president and CEO, Raul Kakar. So I guess the first question then is if you could tell me a bit about Tome from the initial ideas to the recent exiting of stealth mode. Yeah, happy happy to do so. Tome was founded in 2021, really initially off foundational science from a lab run by Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar Amadaya at MIT. And they devised a way of using a conglomerate of enzymes to put very large pieces of DNA into the genome in a site-specific manner, what they called programmability. And I remember in the summer of 2021, after my prior company had been acquired, reading the paper sometime before it was published, preprint, and being even not having a history or experience in the field of CRISPR-Cas9 technologies and genome editing, being struck by the profound quantum leap that this science represented. Because to date, when we think about the field of genetic or genomic medicines, so medicines that are derived from manipulating DNA specifically, we've been very limited in terms of how we can manipulate DNA. We can randomly place pieces of DNA into the genome. We can place pieces of DNA with very little control through what's called blunt end insertion. We can cut DNA and break it through CRISPR-Cas9. And in some cases, we can put pieces of DNA in places that are natively recognized by the enzyme, what we call safe harbors. But to really have true user control, to empower a drug developer with the capability of editing the DNA as if it were computer code with true flexibility has eluded us as an industry within the discipline of nucleic acid sciences. It really has been a holy grail that has eluded scientists until our founders devised this method of, again, using not one enzyme, but multiple enzymes in a specific configuration um, to be able to, again, programmably or site-specifically put very, very large pieces of DNA into the genome. And once you can do that, not only was there sort of obvious applications as a company, but at least in my estimation as I read the paper, it ushers in what I would consider the final maturation of genomic sciences for therapeutic purposes. I would say that of the technology that have come previously, and although I do believe there will be a few of very important medicines that will do great good for patients that come out of the companies that have come before us, many of those technologies, I think history, as best as I can surmise, I think history will judge those as to be important advances along the way towards this idea of programmably and flexibly editing the DNA. And so everything we've done here from that initial technology and industrializing it and scaling it to be a drug development platform to most recently the acquisition of Replace Therapeutics, which we can talk about in the course of this conversation, 
really has been about Tome as a company wedded to this idea of DNA is the code of life and to really bring genomic medicines to their maturity, we need to build a stable of tools, not just one tool, but a stable of tools that allows us to edit the DNA in that light. You mentioned it being a quantum leap earlier. Does that mean that things like CRISPR-Cas9 are going to be redundant or do they still have a role? They very much still have a role. So all of the technologies that we have, and there are two that we are actively developing and a third that we're evaluating, they all use CRISPR-Cas9 at their core. I think one way to think about it is CRISPR-Cas9 as the CPU of a computer. And in order to make a computer a desktop with certain capabilities versus a tablet versus a laptop versus a watch versus an iPhone, you augment the core brain with other functionality. And that is what our technologies look like. CRISPR-Cas9, we can certainly do it with other CASs, but we really haven't found one that is superior to Cas9 at this time as the core element of our technologies. And then we augment its capabilities with other enzymes, which greatly expand and transform its capabilities. Because of that quantum leap, you've raised a lot of money for the company where other companies have struggled for funding, or at least some have. Is that the reason behind the success? Yeah, I think when you are developing a novel drug development platform in the truest sense of the word, and a new way of devising medicines that come from being able to manipulate DNA. If you take a step back, what you're really doing is creating a company whose pipeline is going to spread from the final evolution of what we traditionally have thought of as gene therapies all the way through to cellular therapies. Because when you can really recode DNA to do whatever you want it to do, you bring a whole new level of design power to cell therapies. And a company that spreads from rare disease, integrative gene therapies, as we call them, through common disease cell therapies with a novel DNA editing technology is going to have several complexities. It's going to be a relatively large organization, a lot of different skill sets, a lot of expertise, even before you even get to the clinic. It's going to require some breakthroughs in process development, manufacturing, et cetera. And so that becomes an expensive company to run. And so we have been able to raise a larger quantum of capital within the spectrum of, to what you alluded to, the amount of capital that companies have been able to raise in the last couple of years, particularly in a very difficult time for our industry. But I think, one, that is what the technology requires. And fortunately, there are investment firms Um, and individuals who have the financial horsepower and the vision to see the potential of the company and the technology and to back the company with the amount of capital it's required to move what is effectively a new regime of drug development forward. In terms of the process and how you actually work, you can insert DNA sequences into the genome or PGI, programmable genomic integration. What's the benefit of doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, scientists and drug development experts have been limited in how they design and develop therapies based on 
DNA by the DNA editing and um, manipulating tools that they had. When you can now insert DNA, whether it's 10 base pairs, 100 base pairs, 1,000 base pairs, or 10,000 base pairs plus, which our various technologies allow us to do, anything from 10 to tens of thousands of base pairs, in a manner that is flexible in terms of size, flexible in terms of efficiency, which is you know how many alleles are you editing when you target a, a given organ, and flexible in terms of location, where it's not location that is restricted by the tools, but restricted only by the imagination of the drug developer, you can do several things. When there is a genetic disease, in other words, a child or an adult suffering from a disease where nature has broken a gene inadvertently, we can fix the gene in situ, which means we can repair the DNA in a manner that the cell will function as if it never had a broken gene to begin with. It's not patching, it's not a workaround for a genetic defect, as could be argued is the reality for current methods of gene therapy. Again, to use computer parlance, it's not running a subroutine or it's not having to move from Microsoft Word to Google Docs because Microsoft Word is broken. It's repairing the primary problem. And so that allows the cell to grow and develop and to regulate its own processes in a completely natural way. You know, over 90% of the human genome is regulatory. It doesn't code for the proteins that do the business. Regulation of genes is incredibly important. More so in some cells than others, but in general, regulation of genes is incredibly important. So our ability to manipulate DNA in situ or in its place allows those natural regulatory elements to do what nature designed them to do. On the other side of the business, on the cell therapy side, cell therapies have provided incredible, absolutely revolutionary efficacy for patients with rare liquid tumors or hematologic malignancies, but they've had a very difficult time moving beyond that niche. And we believe that the reason for that is we haven't been able to actually completely hijack, you know, the source code of a cell to have it do what we wanted to do from a therapeutic standpoint, rather than what limited abilities we can give it when you can only do limited things with the DNA. And so this ability to really be size agnostic, high efficiency, and completely site-specific really allows us to repair genes in their place for genetic defects and to start to think about bringing cell therapies out of the corners of medicine more into the mainstream. Those are not capabilities that are possible with technologies coming before Tome, which are much more limited, before PGI. When it comes to those genetic conditions or diseases, how do you first find the issue in the genetic code and then go about changing it? So we talk about Tome really having three verticals. One vertical is platform engineering, where we do a lot of the fundamental, like I said, industrialization, engineering of the base technologies. And then we have two product development arms. One is for what we call integrative gene therapies, which is sort of where your question kind of aligns. And then we have cell therapies. For integrative gene therapies, we target diseases that are well recognized by medicine today. Many of them are either identified early in childhood, when a child is born and has a certain constellation of signs and symptoms. Some of them are picked up even earlier 
than initial signs and symptoms through newborn screening um, because they are prevalent enough. Um, but these are gen- generally diseases that are well known within medicine. And understanding whether a child or an adult has that disease is a matter of sequencing the genome, which is used in academic centers and hospitals today. So we are taking those diseases which are recognized by medical institutions today in childhood and in adult using standard diagnostic techniques that are also used today, um, but bringing potentially truly curative solutions to those children and adults who are given a diagnosis and in many cases have to either live with the disease or wrestle with suboptimal chronic therapies which only partially control their disease. You explain a bit about integrase-mediated PGI and ligase-mediated PGI and the differences between them? By all means. So this is what we were talking about before, is augmenting the core of CRISPR-Cas9 with other enzymes, other proteins, which do the business. And one of those kind of workhorse enzymes that we marry to CRISPR-Cas9 is an integrase. Integrases are naturally occurring enzymes which integrate very large pieces of DNA into the genome. This is their function in nature. What our founders have done and what we've improved upon is combining the seek and find capability of CRISPR-Cas9 with the integrating capability of the integrase to bring that functionality of putting very large pieces of DNA, thousands to tens of thousands of base pairs into the genome in the site that is specified by the programming of CRISPR-Cas9. When it comes to ligase-mediated programmable genomic integration, or or LPGI, ligase-mediated PGI, rather than using an integrase, we use a ligase. And the reason we use one versus the other is that integrases are very, very good at handling very large pieces of DNA. Again, thousands to tens of thousands. But they are, for their complexity, they are a bit of overkill when you want to integrate tens to hundreds of base pairs. And so a much simpler system would be to use a ligase, another naturally occurring enzyme, which ligates into the genome, smaller segments of DNA. Um, And so that was the technology we acquired from Replace Therapeutics. We saw it as very complementary to our first technology, integrase media PGI, but much more of a simpler system, fewer components, easier to deliver, and much better suited to those smaller edits. So we think about ligase media PGI for those instances where we want to edit portions of a gene or portions of the regulatory elements of a gene, but integrase media PGI really when we want to replace a gene wholesale. Are there any dangers or challenges involved with these kind of techniques? Always, always, always. When you're addressing, you know, manipulating the code of life, there are always going to be dangers. And I would say the biggest danger is what we call off-target, where your edit or your insert is not where you want it to be. We are lucky to have a scientific team who have been thinking about designing methods and presenting those methods to regulators, methods which deal with the risk of off-targets. And so our genomics team, who handles that, professionals who have a history of thinking about and addressing issues of off-targets, work very closely with our platform development team. That's the team, as I mentioned before, who does the engineering of the enzymes to increase their efficiency and increase their specificity. And so combining our platform development team with our genomics team, we have spent the last couple of years 
not just industrializing the platform and determining which diseases we think are most amenable to PGI, but also designing the uh, methods and assays, some of which are completely bespoke, given the newness of the technology, to reduce the risk of and to evaluate off-target effects. So we have a very strong focus on the safety of what we're doing at Tome. Uh, we put a lot of resources and, and dedicated teams to making sure that what we do to the genome is precise and minimizes the risk of untoward edits that we wouldn't want within the genome. Is this something that is reversible? I mean, if you, if there was a mistake, could you go in and fix it? We have done some work to show that it can be reversible if programmed, if designed the right way. Our first programs will likely not include those elements. It adds a layer of technical complexity, but we certainly see in the future that we may be able to layer on a level of engineering which allows reversibility. To put it quite, quite frankly, integrases can integrate, but they can also excise. And so adding another layer of programming where the first layer inserts you know, the DNA, the corrective DNA, or the reprogramming DNA that we like, eventually we could layer on another layer of engineering, which allows us to then excise that if there's an issue. What conditions and diseases will you be applying this to initially? We haven't publicly disclosed our pipeline, um, which we will be doing later this year. But what I can say is, you know, because it is a very new technology um, and any new technology in its first instance, and this is more a, a tenant of startup company building, we want to make sure that we minimize the risks that we take, not just to the patient, but also to the company itself. And so we've decided initially to focus the two programmatic pillars in areas where we felt there was manageable risk and a high degree of probability of success to help the patients that, that we'd like to address first. And so on the integrative gene therapy side, we'll be focusing on diseases of the liver, primarily because delivery of these components is most well understood when it comes to the liver. Delivery to other organs like muscle, brain tissue, kidney, they are more experimental in the industry right now, but the liver is more routine. And fortunately, we were able to scour the landscape of genetic defects of the liver and determine four or five diseases which are not similar to where most CRISPR-Cas9 companies are going, and we felt were truly conditions of unmet need where we could really do a service to those patients. And I think, you know, great technology is fine, but it is really only truly great if it can create great medicines. A great technology that just creates a medicine that doesn't add value to the current regime of care for a patient is an academic pursuit. It's not an industrial pursuit. As we spent the last year and a half or so thinking through and doing our homework, our diligence on genetic conditions of the liver, we were quite excited to find several diseases that we thought were truly underserved by current standards of care and were uniquely, potentially uniquely addressed by integrase or ligase-mediated PGI. On the cell therapy side, you know, same thing. We said, look, if we can truly flexibly manipulate cells, reprogram them to be therapeutics and we no one else can, that'll only ever be academic unless we can create a truly differentiated medicine. And so we were excited to design our first cellular therapy, which is now in production. 
and believe that it has the potential to be a best in class for patients with autoimmune disease specifically. In that regard, what would represent success for you? Is that completely curing? Is it managing? Yeah, I think in an ideal world, these are curative therapies. It's interesting, when I started in the industry in 2011, when I finished my clinical training uh, here in Boston, we never used the word cure unless it was for an antiviral or an antibiotic, a vaccine or an antibiotic. And we are now on the cusp of considering cure for numerous diseases. Um, and so I, I think that evolution of biopharma in the last 10 to 12, 13 years is staggering, that we can actually can contemplate curing certain diseases. And so when we set out and to evaluate a disease, we ask several questions. One is, is it a disease that is well served by current modalities, either pills, injectables, or silencing RNA technologies, or even prior instances of genome editing technologies? If they're well suited, then, then we don't want to go after them. The second question we ask is, can we truly cure this disease by fixing the DNA or reprogramming the DNA? And if we can't answer both of those questions in a supportive manner, then we don't go after that disease. So everything we try to do at Tome really is with this intent to cure, or at least provide you know, multi-year, very long-lasting, durable disease control. When it comes to a lot of cell and gene therapies, cost and scalability are both issues. Have you addressed or looking to address that? We will need to, because we are still in preclinical scale-up development costs are still very, very high. It's part of why we have to raise quite a bit of capital, much of which goes to external vendors who help us with animal testing or manufacturing, et cetera. But as we scale towards clinical testing and particularly the later phases of clinical testing, phase two and phase three, we are already beginning to think about how we bring down the cost of materials to therefore contain the cost of the drugs themselves. I think curative or durable clinical effect from genomic therapies will always command a premium price simply because they are a one and done. And they should be compared not to the cost of an individual pill or an individual injectable, but what is the cost of that pill or the injectable over the multi-years, if not the lifespan, that an individual would be paying for a drug that ordinarily would control, but in this case is a one and done. And so the initial sticker price will always be higher but I, I am, you know, again, as a practicing physician, I believe in value-based care, and I believe on balance, amortized, the cost of the drug should be within the bounds of the value to the patient and to society over the years by which the drug is efficacious, whether you're taking that drug every day or, or it's a one and done. But with always the endeavor to control the cost as much as possible, and a lot of that goes into the cost of manufacturing. These are some of the most, if not the most complex drug products ever envisioned, multi-component, very expensive components like pieces of DNA, pieces of lipid, pieces of virus. They are highly complex to manufacture. Um, so cost is something where even though we're very far away from commercialization, we're already beginning to think about how we scale our manufacturing to minimize cost to the patient. I think quite often there's a sort of a linear approach to cost insofar as it's how much does this treatment cost? And that just becomes the, I guess, the overall discussion. But as you said, you have to consider 
when families have to give up jobs to look after people or the cost of hospital stays. And there are so many other economic issues that impact upon the cost that it's very difficult to uh, quantify. I completely agree with you. There there are professional organizations like NICE in Europe and ICER here in the U.S. who do that work um, and, do, and there are many, many academics as well um, at the Chan School of Public Health uh, within the Harvard ecosystem where I work who do that work and do that work the best that they can. I think, you know, the public discourse often focuses on the top line sticker price. And I certainly think the disparities of cost between different countries is of concern. But I also do think there's a rational argument for curative therapies to have a higher sticker price because of the value they deliver to a patient, their family, to your point, and to society. So I think, you know, if cooler heads prevail, I think these are medicines that society can afford. But I also think we have to be careful to try to contain those costs and have those value-based discussions with multiple territories and multiple countries and not just rely on any one territory or country to float the cost for the rest of the world. I know that in looking through some of the literature on your website, it mentions this as being the final chapter in genomic medicine. I wonder if you could explain that and maybe also what the implication is of that for other companies that might be entering this area and might look at that and think, what are we doing then? (laughs) Well, I think we usually we usually get a, a snicker saying, yeah, is that a little bit of a hubris? And, you know, we thought long and hard before we decided to use that phraseology. And I I will quote from our chief science officer who said, well, what tool are we missing after PGI? If you can now put any size piece of DNA into the genome exactly where you want it to go, it could be a portion of a gene, a gene, it could be a gene circuit containing multiple genetic elements. What are we missing at that point? Um, And I would argue we're not. At that point, It's really hard to imagine what further capability a genomic drug developer could need. Now, not to say there aren't improvements to be made. These systems are multi-component. They are complex. They are expensive to make. And certainly simplification of these systems is a laudable goal and something that our platform team works on as we think about generation two and three and beyond of PGI. As for technology that have come before us, traditional gene therapies, CRISPR-Cas9-based technologies, base editing, prime editing. Like I said before, I think they will have their place, and I think there are some very important medicines that will come from these technologies. But the reason I, at this point in my career, have chosen to put my blood, sweat, and tears into Tome is because I believe we're at a critical point in the evolution of genetic medicines writ large. If we think about any human industrial arena, not just in biopharma, but also in technologies, in in industrial technologies, internet technologies, artificial intelligence. The first instance of a technology was never the one that defined the field. Large language models are not the first instance of AI. AI has been around for decades, if not most of a generation. The iPhone was not the first instance of a cell phone slash internet communicator. Even as we think about the internal combustion engine, the commoditization and the generalization of the automobile did not rest on the first example. Even electric cars, right, have gone through their iterations over time. And my impression at looking the, again, as an an outsider coming into this field is if we look back 
to traditional gene therapies dating back to the 90s through to the 2012 uh, discovery of CRISPR-Cas9, many of these technologies were the heroic endeavors by academics and the biopharma industry to realize the full potential of genetic medicines, but the tools were very limited. And when I look at PGI specifically, I see it as that final maturation of the technologies, which will allow us to deploy genetic medicines, both cell and gene therapies, with the kind of breath that so far have been relegated to biologic large molecules, chemical-based small molecules, and RNA therapeutics. And so when we say the final chapter, now I think it is a question of what are we missing? We can't think of another tool, another capability that we're missing. And once you can flexibly edit the DNA, most of the other technologies look limited in some way. And so that's why we call it the final chapter. You mentioned about fine tuning and improving over time. Will that all come from within your company or is the capacity for other companies or other academics to be involved in developing this further? At this point, you know, just given this field of programmability where we believe we are the leaders in that space, we're doing much of that innovation here. We are constantly monitoring and speaking with academics who we believe may have work that will enhance what we're doing. And we are, in some instances, acquiring those technologies, like with Replace, or partnering with those academics who believe they can augment what we're doing. And we are certainly interested in partnering with large pharmaceutical companies who can help us expand the reach of the technology far beyond what we can do. Although, as you've said, we've raised a sizable quantum of capital. We cannot, with the capital we have, execute even on all of our own ideas. And there are probably many applications outside of you know, the brain trust here at Tome that would have applications we haven't even considered yet. So we are a science first organization. Um, and we certainly understand that the best ideas in the service of patients or what should move forward, those may or may not come from within Tome. Sure. Uh, you've mentioned replace therapeutics and the acquisition. Could you tell me what the company does and why you took it over and what that means for Tome going forward? Yeah, Replace was the organization that invented ligase-mediated PGI. And so it's very complementary, as we've talked about in this conversation, very complementary to what we were doing with integrase-mediated PGI, but on those smaller scale edits, tens to hundreds of base pairs. And so we were actually approached by the organization who recognized that what they were working on, which was in stealth at the time, was very complementary to what we're doing. And so, you know, in a matter of months, um, there was alignment in terms of combining our efforts. And the, at the end of last year, we, we consummated that acquisition. And so Replace really brought to us that capability with a simpler system than Integrase Media PGI to make those smaller edits that are you know on the scale of portions of the gene rather than Integrase Media PGI, which is really much more suited to full gene or multi-gene edits. Obviously, the sky's the limit, it seems like, for the company. So what are the next steps? Yeah, so we are we are about two and a half years into operations at the company. We'll begin presenting and releasing our data in the course of this year, um, as well as some of the specific diseases we'd like to go after. And so we believe that both for integrative gene therapies and for cell therapies, basic de-risking and validation of PGI for the creation of integrative gene therapies and cell therapies is complete. We've done enough preclinical work 
and enough industrialization of the scale up and manufacturing processes that we feel very comfortable um, that these are going to be bona fide and powerful methods for designing new drugs. And so now we're in the process of nominating those drug programs. And as we do so, we'll begin releasing in the public domain our data, the diseases we're going after, and the kind of therapeutic potential we think those programs will have. Some really compelling science there and a very interesting conversation, and definitely a company to watch out for to see how this develops later in the year and beyond. Don't forget to check out the latest news and articles at labiotech.eu, and I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time for another Beyond Biotech. 